Welcome to the Inez Franklin Teaching and Sermons Podcast. Inez is a teaching pastor, public speaker, and founder at trochia.org. Learn more about Inez at www.inezfranklin.com. We hope this teaching brings you guidance, connection, or tools as we seek God together today. Enjoy the teaching. we're starting a brand new series called uh, Looking for Miracles. How many of you would love to see a miracle happen, right? Yes. You know that uh, statistics or or surveys say that 80% of people believe in miracles and many people want miracles to happen. Uh, The fact is whether you're of faith or not, you know, people want miracles miracles to happen. They believe they do happen. And we're going to spend the next few weeks really talking about miracles all the way to Easter. Now, I, I know that we all come with different things as we walk through the door. I know some of you are probably going, yes, Inez, I need a miracle. I believe in miracles. I I believe God can do miracles. I know exactly what I need God to do. Yes, I need a miracle. You're right there. Some of you are like, yes, Inez, I need a miracle. But am I doing something to get in the way of it? Am I supposed to do something to make it happen? This doesn't seem to be happening the way that I expect. And then I think there's some of you are like, yes, I need a miracle. I've been praying, I've been begging, I've been looking, and nothing is happening. And I wonder... Is it gonna, is it gonna happen? I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking some of you are there. And in some ways, I am too. I, um, at the prior service, a dear friend was here, a friend who's battling cancer. She hasn't been at the church for a few days because she had to go through the chemo. And as I saw her today, it was like, dear God, we need a miracle. We need a miracle against this cancer. And so, yes, we probably come this morning with a variety of, of feelings or, or thoughts about miracles. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk into this series, and we're going we're gonna to look at the miracles that Jesus did. He did many miracles. All the Gospels tells us the stories of miracles. And I honestly believe that many people believe in Jesus, even if they're not Christians. They believe that Jesus was a good teacher, a good prophet, a wise man, a very good person. People believe that. And sometimes we buy into the same things, and all that is true. But what we're going to see over the next few weeks is that Jesus was powerful, that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he did mighty miracles as evidence of his glory, and that we we can't just believe in a little safe theologian Jesus. That's not enough. We have a Jesus that's much greater, so we're going to look at the miracles, and we're going to learn who is this Jesus we're putting our faith on. And as we see his miracles, my prayer for you and for me is that our faith is stronger. Our understanding of Jesus grows that we might represent him well to the world. We're going to look at miracles, the nature of miracles. Why do miracles happen? What was the intent behind the miracles that were recorded? What can we learn about those miracles? And we're going to look at what is our response to miracles? What should be the way in which we interact with them? How do we uh, respond back to what God is doing through miracles? Those are the things we're going to do in this series. 
And we're going to look through the Gospel of John. You know, anytime you meet someone who's never read the Bible and they say, where do I start? I don't know where to start. Take them to the Gospel of John. What a beautiful Gospel. That's a very good place to start. And I love that we're going to be doing that over the next few weeks. Because John tells us about eight miracles that Jesus performs. Seven before the resurrection, one after. And we're going to do the seven over the next few weeks. And we're going to see... We're going to see who Jesus is, what miracles are for, and what are we supposed to respond to. And so we're going to be in John chapter 2 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, uh, let's go there. You can use your phone. We have extra Bibles in the back. Either way, I'll read it to you. Listen to what it says. On chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he tells you, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests had had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this account, this story we're reading, this miracle, Father, that Jesus did. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for me that this time, this 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 few minutes that we spend studying your word will be a time drenched with you, your presence, your wisdom. I pray for a supernatural experience for all of us, that we might hear your voice, that we might sense your presence, that we we might understand you, Jesus, in a way we never have before. Father, would you use me as your vessel to speak? May it not be my words or anything I prepared fully. Father, you've put some things in my heart, but I give you full reign. You who reign, you reign in this space, O God. You be the one to open eyes, to transform minds, to change lives. Do miracles here this morning, O God. We submit this time to you. We submit ourselves to you, to your good, good pleasure, O God, because you are loving and faithful and kind, and you are so trustworthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here's what John does. He starts his gospel from chapter 1, 
counting days. If you've ever read the Gospel of John, you'll notice that in chapter 1, he starts telling us that John the Baptist uh, starts to declare who Jesus is. And so then we're told, on the next day, John said this about Jesus. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A little bit later, it says, on the next day, again, John points to Jesus and says, look, the Lamb of God. On the next day, we're told that Jesus leaves Galilee and he meets his disciples. He starts to gather people who will be working with him. And so John is counting days. And chapter 2 says, on the third day. Now, if you're counting, if you read this and you're counting along, you're going, wait, we've already had a third day. Why is he saying on the third day? Here's what's amazing about John and the way he writes his gospel is that he not only tells us things that are real and practical and they are for face value, but he's also speaking to us about a greater truth and bringing to mind certain things about God as he writes. Listen to how beautiful this is. When it says that this day, the next day, the next day, the next day, and now the third day, this day where this miracle occurred actually happened on the seventh day. Now, what did God do on the seventh day? He rested. What is Jesus doing on the seventh day? He's at a wedding. That would come to mind. The other thing is he says, on the third day. On the third day from when? On the third day since Jesus began his ministry. You see, it counts from the moment that Jesus called uh, Nathaniel and Philip to be his disciples. Three days from then is where we find ourselves in this, um, in this wedding. So on the third day, Jesus does his first miracle. How, what else does the third day remind you of? What happened after Jesus died on the cross? On the third day, he, he rose again. You see what John, John is doing? Constantly, he is trying to prove and show evidence of something he passionately believes in. He tells us this at the beginning of John chapter 1, where he tells us that the word became flesh. This is in verse 14. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The entire gospel of John is John's intentional effort to prove, to show evidence, to get us to understand, believe, and accept that Jesus is God in the flesh. And he begins this first story, this first miracle that Jesus does, the very first miracle in the ministry of Jesus. And it tells us a lot, a lot about Jesus. In fact, in John 1, 51, Jesus says, when, when he, uh, John the Baptist says, you are the son of God, he says, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of God, the son of man. You will see heaven open. At the first miracle, we're about to see heaven open. We're about to see heaven on earth. And so this is the whole intent. And so Jesus is invited to a wedding. We're told that Mary was already there. Jesus is invited to the wedding with his disciples, which tells us what about Jesus, what tells us what about God. When he's invited, he shows up. 
When we ask Jesus to come in, he never says no. We send him an invitation. He never has to wait to RSVP. He doesn't wait till the last minute. He doesn't think he has a better deal coming. He says yes. Without hesitation, when we invite him, he comes. Now, there's a chance that today, some of you, maybe you, you are here because that's the very one thing you need to leave today with. Perhaps you need to invite Jesus to your situation. Perhaps it is today that you need to invite Jesus into your life, into your heart, into your mind. You haven't invited Jesus so far. You've been looking at him from the distance, but would you invite him today? Would you be courageous and let him in? Because when he comes, and he will, oh, powerful things are going to happen. When Jesus shows up, there are always, always, always miracles. Because that's who he is. So maybe today, maybe your one task, the rest of the sermon you can figure out how to invite him, but one one thing to do today is just invite Jesus in. Because he will come. That's the first first thing we see. The other thing we see is that Jesus' timing is perfect. He shows up at this wedding precisely when he is most needed. We read in verse 3, when the wine was gone. (gasps) Big deal. Now I know for us we think, big deal. You know, maybe I don't even like wine. Okay, put yourself in the context of a first century party. The wine essentially, we're not, the Bible isn't talking about drunkenness and it's okay to do all that. No, but we know, right? There's a party going on. And when the wine runs out, the party runs out. And in the first century, there were no Bevmos where you can go do a quick run or pavilions, right? Pick up a few more bottles and save the day. No, it was a big deal. And not only that, it was culturally unacceptable for a bridegroom, which I personally love this, that the bridegroom was responsible for the whole party because we have four daughters. We're like, come on, bring that tradition back. But the bridegroom would have been shamed for not having enough wine, for not having planned properly for the needs of the people at the party. Some of these parties lasted a week. And so they had to plan ahead. This was a cultural moment, an agricultural uh, culture who worked hard. And, hey, they were looking forward to that wedding. They were going to party, party hard. And this family, this young teenage couple, made a fatal mistake. They did not plan well. And Jesus shows up right in the midst of that situation where they would have experienced huge shame culturally in their family. People would have gone, hey, those are the people. I went to their wedding. They ran out of wine. They did? Oh, my gosh. It would have carried with them. And to us, it may seem like nothing. But culturally speaking, that would have been a very difficult thing to overcome. So Jesus comes right when he's most needed when the huge problem comes. And then I love this little dialogue between Jesus and his mother. He calls her woman, which in our uh, culture today, it would be more like saying, ma'am. Now, if my kids call me ma'am, to see a Puerto Rican coming out. It's like, ma'am. But here's what's happening. Jesus is not being disrespectful. This is the son of God. He is good all the time, right? So there had to be a good reason for him calling his mother Ma'am, and I believe it's because at this moment, his first miracle, what's about to happen, there needs to be something corrected between Jesus and his mom. 
I'm a mother. If you're a mother, you're totally going to be with me. I know it. Because we think our kids are our babies, no matter how old they are. And we're like, mama, mama, mama. You know, I've got kids. My oldest son is 32. I can't believe it. And I just had breakfast with him and his sons uh, this weekend. It was like, he's, he's still my baby. I still look at him. He's still my baby. And at this moment, Jesus has to kind of separate himself, show Mary who he really is. Uh, when my son was a teenager, he made a decision. I did not like this at all, but he decided, Mom, I don't want to walk with you. So he would walk ahead of me or behind me when we went to the supermarket, and he would stay at a different aisle. I was so upset. I was like, come on, let me, Mom. He's like, no, Mom, it's just not cool to walk with you. And although I did not understand it, I certainly didn't like it, what he was essentially saying to me is, I want to be a man. Yeah, I want to grow up. And I, somehow I have to separate from my, you, you just enough so you can let me be a man, woman. And I think what, jo, what Jesus is telling to Mary, I am your son, yes. But now I am the Lord. You see? Now Jesus is going to step up to the role of who he, now he is he's being obedient not just to his mom, but he's obedient to God, the Father. He's going to do some things that Mary may not un, fully understand. He has to step into who he is. And so this is just a correction. But notice that, nevertheless, Jesus does what she asked him. He does something about it. I love her response. She just like, got it, you're Lord. Uh, just do what he says. And so Jesus points to the servants, and he tells them what to do. Six stone jars are sitting on the side, and Jesus understands that there's a need to be met, and he looks at the jars and he says, go fill those up with water, draw some of it, and bring it to the master of the banquet, which would have been the uh, wedding planner, the party planner. Now, you can imagine it would be that person's job to be sure that wine uh, was served. All the glasses were starting to run on empty. The servants had no more wine to serve. And now they're told, fill those jars with water, 180 gallons approximately of water. Take some out and bring it to the master of the banquet, which they probably for a minute, I'm thinking, thought, "Uh, yet, are you trying to shame this guy in front of everyone? Because what are we going to do? Bring him now water and say, serve everyone water instead of wine. So I got to believe for a minute, they were a little nervous about it. Have you ever been a little nervous sometimes with Jesus where he goes, hey, go do this. And you're like, that makes no sense, God. But I love that the servants said yes. And they did what Jesus told them to do. This is the first miracle. The water now turns into wine. We're told that the master gets the the cup and he drinks of it and he realizes, whoa, this is good stuff. Where was this hiding? We learned something about Jesus. When he does miracles, he is extravagant. Extravagant. He gives you far more than you could ever imagine. We ask for one thing. He gives us beyond our wildest imagination. When my husband and I first moved here, we were, our lives were a mess. We're trying to rebuild. My husband was praying for godly men to be around him, that we would have new friends. And my goodness, God has responded to that with abundance. That's what God is. He is extravagant in his response. And so Jesus does a miracle. He turns the water into wine. Now, this is not a little fable story. It's not a symbolic story, though it, there's a tremendous amount of symbolism. This was a miracle. Water turned 
to wine. Now, you, if you know anything about wine, you know that you have to collect the grapes. Well, you have to grow them, first of all, right? Water them, collect them, press them, put them through a whole system, and bang, you get wine, hopefully good wine or decent wine. Jesus bypasses that entire process, and it goes straight from water to wine. And he makes lots of it, and it's good, really good. And so the master of the ceremonies, he's like, what? How did this happen? This is not normal. But you see, this is what we learn about God. The thief comes to steal and destroy, right? To kill. But Jesus came that we may have life to the fullest. That's what Jesus comes to do, to give abundantly. When we invite Jesus in, when we ask him for what we need, he will bless us abundantly. He will do the impossible. He will do powerful things that will blow our minds, but we have to invite him. We have to let him do it in his perfect timing. That's who he is. And then we see that it reveals his glory. That's the whole point. Verse 11 says, what Jesus did there in Cain of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples did what? What did his disciples do? Believed in him. They believed in him. We're told that this happened in a little town called Cana. Little podunk town. Jesus could have done his first miracle at a temple. He could have done it at the town square. He could have called all out, hey, come, come, check it out. I'm going to do the biggest miracle right here in front of everyone. He doesn't do that. He goes to a little town. He goes to a wedding, and that's where he chooses to do his miracle. And it's the first miracle. And it's interesting that it's important to John to point that out for us, as though we know we're reading the gospel and we can see this is his first miracle. He points it out. And the word that he uses is arche. There is a Greek word for number one, the first thing, and that's prado. He uses arche, which is more than just the first one. It's the primary one, the chief one. It's the same word Jesus uses of himself when he says, I am the beginning and the end, the beginning, arche. And, you know, we know it in the negative terms. So when you think of the arch enemy, right, the most extreme, This is the most, the beginning, the most important, the most primary, the most chief thing we're about to learn about Jesus is in this miracle, which is why it's the first miracle. And what do we learn? That he comes to a wedding and his job in that wedding is simply, simply, though it's not so simple to remove shame. That young couple didn't see what was coming at them. That young couple probably didn't even know that God cared about them. But God cared so much, he sent his son to that wedding to be sure they were not covered in shame. Because let me tell you, the enemy wants us to be covered in shame. And every one of us struggles with shame one way or another. And even if we are saved by Christ and we believe in his grace, we're going to find ourselves at times re-believing that we are not who we are, who God wants us to be. I've been a pastor for some time. I'm a believer for 14 years. And listen, I still have those moments where the enemy gets in my head. And I tell you when it happens, can I be vulnerable with you? Are we like friends? Are we cool? All right, thanks. Because here's what happens. I, I've been working. I, I mean, I've made big mistakes. I've done some really not so good things. You guys have heard my story. You know, you know what it's like. But now what happens is there's still a part of my heart that I like, 
embarrassed to share with you that's still there. Like if I stub my toe, I say a big, ugly word. Or if, or if someone cuts in front of me when I'm driving, oh, the stuff that comes out. Or, you know, systems aren't happening in the order that I like them to happen. Not so good with Inez. Or whatever it is, I have this little, like, side of me that comes out. And I'm like, where did that come from? And I know what the enemy likes to say. Well, Inez, you know, if they knew... If people knew this about you, they would never listen to you preach. If people knew this about you, they would not trust you with anything. Because here's what he does. He takes our mistakes and he tries to twist them into our identity. He says, oh, you did that? That's because that's who you are. You made that mistake, but that's because you're a mistake. You're in the wrong place because you're wrong to begin with. He wants to make us worthless. He wants to kill and destroy our very soul. He wants to shame us to death. And when he shames us, we think, well, I might as well do that thing because guess what? I'm already a lost thing. That's what he wants. But no, that's not what Jesus wants for you and me. Jesus came to take that shame for us. He went to the cross In Hebrews tells us he knew the glory that would come, but first he accepted the shame of the cross so that we would be free from shame, so that we would be freed. Our identity would be secure in Christ. Though the enemy constantly tries to lie to us and twist it back and mess with our identity, he cannot. Our mistakes, the the fact that we do the things we don't want to do or we don't do the things that we want to do, those are mistakes and that transformation is still happening. Every morning there's a new mercy. There is grace upon grace upon grace for those who put their trust in Jesus. Do I hear an amen? amen? And so Jesus comes to this wedding to do the most miraculous thing, which is to save a couple from shame. And he does something. The, the turning the water into wine is an act of creation. It demonstrates that he has the right to do this. Because when you think about it, what did God do? The very first thing that God did, we begin the Bible, in the beginning, God created So in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he creates, he takes water, he turns it into wine. He demonstrates, I am the Alpha, the Omega. He demonstrates, I am God in the flesh. The creation was for me, in me, and through me. All was created through Jesus. And so we watch the Creator together with people at a wedding with one task to remove shame. Isn't that wonderful? The most powerful miracle is a life transformed. It's a life made new. What water do you need Jesus to make into wine? What in your life, what relationship, what cancer, what illness, what sadness, what grief, what depression, what anger, What vile do you need Jesus to revive into his goodness? And you know, wine represents joy in scripture. Not just joy, joy to the fullest, fullest, the fullness of joy. Jesus came that our full joy would be complete. And so we lean into this story, recognizing that Jesus, his glory is manifested 
in his desire to re-bring us to joy. And you know what I love about this story? You notice that Jesus tells the servant, put the water in, pour it out, give it to the master of the ceremonies. And then he notices, whoa, this wine is really good. He goes to the bridegroom. Dude, nobody ever serves the good stuff at the end. They usually do it at the beginning. And then when they're drunk, who cares? You serve the best for last. And the bridegroom is like, yeah, I don't know where it came from. And who gets the credit? Does Jesus get the credit? Look at our God. He does mighty miracles, and he steps back, and he lets us take credit even for what he does. That's our God. You know, he could have gone out and just made a big deal about, hey, everyone, come on over. Everyone, gather by the jars. I'm going to do a miracle now. Watch this. Oh, by the way, taste the water. I want to make sure you know it's water because I'm about to make it into really good wine. I want no one to think I made any. He could have done that, right? But honestly, if I were God... You know, if I just think of miracles the way we all tend to think of miracles, I'd be thinking of all kinds of flash and thunder and splendor. This is kind of what we expect of our God. I'd be walking by a tree and going, turn blue. (laughs) Or I totally would get rid of cockroaches because there's like 4,000 species and billions of them. We need no more of those. And I am afraid and honest to share with you, I probably would want the credit. That's not the God we serve. He does miracles every day in our presence. He's doing miracles this morning, right here, right now. And he steps in the background, humble servant as he is. Oh, his glory is demonstrated. And when we share with each other the miracles that God has done in our lives, we point back to him. We point back to the goodness of our God who cares so much about every story. And so I want to take a moment as we finish this. Because the whole point of the miracles that John is telling us is for us to believe. To believe. Verse 11 says, and the disciples believed when they saw this. That we might believe not just in a a nice, kind loving, sweet Jesus, though we should, but that we will believe in a powerful, mighty Jesus, a miracle-making Jesus, a caring God who comes into the middle of our mess in our little problems, and he cares about them enough to use his power to make a difference in our lives. And I'm thinking some of you this morning, you got to invite Jesus in. You don't even know Jesus. So I want to start with you. I want to give you a moment, an opportunity to say those words, I believe. I believe who you are, Jesus. Romans tells us uh, to this. Paul tells us in Romans this. He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. This is not to embarrass you in front of anybody else. This is so that you declare with your mouth what you believe. And if the Holy Spirit has been stirring your heart the whole time we've been talking, And you know what I'm talking about. 
Your heart feels like it's about to fall out of your chest. And God's talking to you. And you want to declare, I believe in that Jesus. I need that Jesus. I want that Jesus. I want to invite him into my life. I want to give you a moment to do so. You just stand up and say, I believe. And, and don't clap or anything. Let's just give people space to do it. And when everyone's done, we will clap and rejoice. But for a moment, let's just give people the space and the moment to say, I believe. So if that's you, just stand up and say it. Thank you again for listening. Make sure to learn more about Inez Franklin at www.inezfranklin.com. You can help share these teachings by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sending this episode to a friend. Make sure to follow Inez Franklin on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and more, where she is engaging with the community and inviting us to participate with God and His work together. Thanks again. Thanks again.